It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Welcome to Milling to Screens, IndieWire's TV industry-focused podcast. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined as always by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. On today's episode, we have a very special interview with Raphael Bob Waxberg about the finale or the final season of BoJack Horseman. No, about BoJack Horseman generally. About his sketch troupe, Old English. And about the end of MASH. I was going to see how long we go. I was like, saying, why are you guys not reacting? Without saying anything and just let Leo be like, wait, are they? So wait, did, am I saying it wrong? It was I, all of BoJack? It was it, some of BoJack. What, what, it was what, the end of BoJack, but not the ending of BoJack. I mean, we talked, we did not talk about the ending. I think he was wary of spoilers. Yep. So we didn't really talk about the ending. It's still soon. It's Monday. Too soon. Too soon. It's been out three days. This is the millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. We're already in the clicker. We're talking about the Super Bowl. <laughs> We're already in the clicker. So guys, the Super Bowl was Sunday, which means that uh, all the Chiefs and the 49ers were not watching BoJack. It means that I owe two sandwiches to each of you. But you did correctly predict the score. It's unfortunate that there was no sandwich bet on. We didn't do any prop bets. We should have done prop bets for our Super Bowl bet, not yeah, just we, the main bet. If we'd done an over-under on points, you would have nailed it. Well, I will say that, um, that the, the ratings are in, and they were up from last year's, but last year was a historic low. Uh, they crested 100 million viewers on Fox, which is a 2% increase. Um, in 2018, they had 103. Also remember that last year's Super Bowl was terrible. Uh, very low scoring, uh, very in, boring, very frustrating. This one was at least close. In spite of what you would think two very large markets in Boston and Los Angeles, a bad Super Bowl. Pretty much does it in. Yeah, it does it in. Yeah. Uh, what about how, do we have ratings for Mass Singer yet? Oh, great question. Uh, following the game, the Mass Singer premiered its third season to a whopping 23.7 million viewers. So that is less than a fourth of the people who watch the actual game. And yet still, uh, that's 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 double the series' previous viewership. Well, of course. Uh, that is, so I haven't watched The Masked Singer in, I don't know, 11 months. And uh, it's ridiculously watchable. Like, I am, I'm upset by how fine-tuned that series is to just kind of mindlessly have on in the background. Yeah, especially as... A relative newcomer to it mm-hmm. like i don't watch a lot of it i, I think no. i saw the first episode back in the day and forgot as much as i could since then um yeah it's it's very well put together to just make you think for us like every time they cut to be like what what is that is that mm-hmm. what you're doing that's weird like mm-hmm. every few seconds um and I, I to put that in context as well last year's uh post-super bowl programming was the world's best uh which was you know who cares this was up 7% compared to that. So again, it's not not huge boosts. No. Those numbers match up with my perception of this year's Super Bowl in that the halftime show was pretty good. Um, Jennifer Lopez is the best part. The game was pretty good. Uh, the commercials were fine. There's none that are like other than our new uh, clicker 
Yeah, the sound Kleka. effect, like that's a perfect commercial, but only for me. I can recognize outside of myself how it's very much just a normal commercial. As a Boston accent um, aficionado, you were happy with the Hyundai? I don't know if I'd say aficionado, just uh, enthusiast, fanboy, enthusiast, probably. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> enthusiast sounds better. Uh, but no, like it, 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 there was nothing remarkable about the game. So it, it I thought it was very exciting. I thought it was a really numbers. good game. I thought it was oh, a good I, game. The people I was watching with were bored out of their mind. What? Mm, maybe they were with boring people. Yeah. No, I was not. So I would call it oh, Super really? Bowl serviceable. But no, I I, I saw... <laughs> Headline. Uh, yeah. I I saw that reaction a lot on Twitter as well. Like, people that like Super Bowl? Mm, it's not. Like, they're, it was 10-10 at halftime. That's not... Like, it's close, but that's not that exciting unless you really want to... Like invest in the nitty gritty play by play. There People were three. There were spectacles. three. There were three turnovers. Like there was yeah. a lot. The ball was going back and nah. forth. Sloppy sports doesn't make for good sports. But the second half was very exciting. And if you, you, you are the crankiest old man <laughs> I have ever met. But that's not an old man take because an old man take would be like defense wins Super Bowls. Thirteen ten. Old man takes rooting for the refs. The clicker. Libby, let's talk about the Writers Guild Awards. Okay. So the Writers Guild Awards were this past weekend. You were there. I was there. I was in a very small press room. No, it was it was a very interesting ceremony. I had not actually been to a WGA Awards before. They have dueling ceremonies on each coast. Um, and what happened as the night progressed is that the New York show kept kind of low-key spoiling the Los Angeles show. So uh, we had just gotten through our opening clips package when other outlets sent email blasts about the first two awards. To that extent, the first two awards were the film awards, were were adapted an original screenplay, which typically when you're in the midst of the Oscar race, you would expect to be the final awards. Do you see why they did them early? I assume because people had to fly out for BAFTA. Correct. Yeah. So So we could get that beautiful picture that Taika oh. took of Bong on the plane. Yeah, of, of Bong Juno on the plane. And his dual Taken screen experience. Taika. Director yep. Bong. He's watching millions of screens. Goddamn right. Uh, Listening is next. He's been podcast adjacent. So I know. I can't wait so till close. Director yeah, Bong yeah, yeah. becomes a listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, clearly Parasite wins for original and uh, Jojo, Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit won for adapted. That was great. It was very strange. It was a very strange way to start the night. The, the WGA awards were pretty good, except where they were terrible. <laughs> uh, well, not terrible, but uh, surprising, let's say. Um in good news, fan favorite, and by fan favorite, I mean pod favorite, Succession took home two separate WGA awards for drama series and also for episodic drama. Mm-hmm. Um, that was great. Barry took home comedy series. Watchmen took home new series. Uh, Chernobyl won, like, it's, again, it's March Sherman's to the Sea. Sherman's March, March to the to Sea. The sea. waiting for it. Yeah. Uh, he he won Chernobyl. the WGA. Chernobyl's March to the Sea. Fosse Verdon. But then, Not what about well. what? You're, are you going to go move to Battery? Because there's one more big good one. Well, no, there's there's there is one more one more <laughs> great big one, which is I think you should leave. with Tim Robinson won the WGA award for comedy variety sketch series. It was amazing. I was so happy. It's such a funny show. Leo hates it. That's fine. Um, Leo. Yeah, it was wonderful. But then there were other things like. 
uh, animation that WGA had in a in a five nominee category. Three of them were Simpsons. Six nominee categories. Three of them were Simpsons. Two of them were Bob's Burgers, I believe. And uh, then there was a BoJack. And one of the Simpsons won. Then there was a BoJack. Sweet repetition of the Emmys, basically, yeah. where it was BoJack, Big Mouth, Bob's Burgers, uh, one other one, and the Simpsons, and the Simpsons won. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, I mean, the Simpsons is an awards force, if only because of how many people have gone through the show over the true. course of the years and thus become voters. That's so, true. Um, and again, they they still write very, very good specific episodes. Uh, they craft jokes very well. Uh, they are on a broadcast schedule. Like, there's a lot to be said for it. It's sure. just surprising um, considering the competition. Sure. Absolutely. Aside from The Simpsons in animation, was there any other category where you're like, this makes sense or doesn't make sense? You know, I thought it was a little curious because um, in episodic comedy, Netflix's freshman show Dead to Me won. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a series that got basically no love for its first season outside of a nomination for Christina Applegate at the Golden Globes. Yeah, she was nominated at the Emmys, the Globes, and the SAGs. But I'll, you are correct in that, like, you're, the idea is correct in the sense that this was positioned as something that could be hitting more categories right. and largely underperformed. And right. then WGAs. Right. And then they got this, uh, this nod at the WGA, not only a nomination, but it won in a... Um, in a very competitive category. So uh, up against Orange is the New Black, Mrs. Maisel. The modern marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> living with yourself, unbecoming a god in Central Florida, and the finale of V. The finale of V. I know, Ben. I know. So it was it was just, it was interesting. And I don't know what that portends for the future, um, particularly because we don't have a release date on Dead to Me Season 2 yet. So there's no telling. And as that would be the eligible season, there's no telling the quality of that. But it's interesting to see that the WGA liked that first season, at least. Yeah. And I, I mean, since that came out, which was last May, I believe, um, I've run into a, a, a not insignificant number of people who are passionate supporters of that show, um, who, who really did completely buy into um, the 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 kind of genre construction of this very nighttime soapy like comedy. Um, and they really responded to it, uh, not just from the performances side. So it's, it is interesting to see it win a WGA award, like win the WGA award. Um, though it was, I guess it had two nominations cause of the, it got new program nod too. So I guess maybe the writers just like it. Is it odd that though it won for overall comedy series that Barry didn't get an episodic nom? There, there was a not, there was not a lot of overlap between what, episodic and overall series or even new. As you can see in episodic comedy, um, only, I, th- I mean, I think. I mean, Veep, Veep and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are the only things that carried over to episodic. Barry, Pen15, and Russian Doll did not have individual episodes nominated. Right. But it's... then Pen15 gets nominated in new series I, I mean there were there were a few things that doubled up but there wasn't as much even in um if you go to drama series uh and in, i will an episodic <laughs> drama series excuse me um watchmen succession mr robot ray donovan the oa 
The Crown, This Is Us, and one episode of Succession, episodic gets a little weird, to be honest. And I'm not sure. It's a, it's a very, it must be a very strange, like, either nomination process or... Well, I mean, it's it's it, like I'm I'm very torn when I look at these categories because on the one hand, there are so many shows that I just love that seem to be ignored in the specific category where a specific writer that deserves it could get the recognition. Uh, on the other hand, it, it is reminiscent of when we do our year end lists and we do the these are our best shows, these are our best new shows, and then these are the best episodes of the year. And when we talk about the best episodes of the year, we are trying to signal out something that that is unto itself an impressive work and not just repeat that the best shows also have the best episodes because that seems like a fairly obvious fact. So it's exciting to see the WGA distinguish certain things and be like, listen, this didn't get in anywhere else, but we do want to spotlight spotlight it here. Um, And yet at the same time, I I do wonder if certain shows... Three Simpsons episodes? Well, and like (laughs) animated its own kind of thing, but something like Barry. Like Barry had a lot of good episodes. It could have split the ballot. Like there there could have been issues in the sense that you know, not everybody knew that they had to vote for this one over that one when it came to the specific thing, and then it just loses out entirely, whereas, you know, uh, Dead to Me, Orange is the New Black, or uh, one of those shows just had the episode that was so clearly it, or they only submitted one, or however it worked. I haven't, I haven't looked into this, obviously, but... Um, it's worth looking into. You know, a lot of the heat behind next Barry year. Is, is Ronnie Lilly. Next year. Well, yeah, and it... And it, that's, a, that's sort of a wordless, a, a, a less dialogue-heavy episode, which is what, even though the episode has to be written... People sure. probably think of it as like, oh, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not filled with monologues or like quippy dialogues. So like it doesn't feel like it's written. And they could have, that could have siphoned votes from something else just because people remember that and responded to it and voted for it. And then the people who were thinking about the episode construction tried to vote for something else. And that episode did win his DGA nod. So yeah. it's like, I mean, it is being honored for a lot of the things that it should be. But Coming up right now, we have an interview with uh, Raphael Bob Wexberg. Do you guys want to say anything before we, ki- we uh, kick to it? God, Hope you enjoy. I love BoJack Horseman. Hope you enjoy. Well, thanks for coming. Of thanks course. Thank you for having by. me. We're very excited. It's a very informal introduction. We could just say, welcome for welcome to being here. Welcome yeah. to being here. Welcome to being here. It's a pleasure to be Bean. I think we just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the end of the show, yeah. um, the show over its course. Um, we've got some random questions, I think, as well. But You're talking um, about BoJack? Or? Uh, BoJack, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, the good place. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, there's been the some end. endings. So. Let's, let's succession. We've got yeah. some, some Is succession over? Oh. MASH. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on the MASH, MASH. <laughs> finale? That's a big one. But no, I, I honestly, just to start with, I was really curious what your process was uh, uh, just to prepare for the final season. Like, obviously, you've been juggling so much lately. You had the great novel that came out. You had uh, you have undone what you're working on, um, but knowing that this is this is 16 episodes of the final show, what did you do? Did you go back and and watch a lot of episodes, read scripts, talk to people? What was um, the... well, I rem- I remember most of the stuff that happened on the show, so I didn't need to rewatch anything. But uh, yeah, you know, we had we I talked with the writers. We all got together. All got together sounds very informal. It was their job. They came to work. <laughs> um, I paid them for their time. Um, and we discussed, yeah, what do we want to see happen to these characters? How do we want to leave this world? Um, what what boxes do we need to check? And I think a big part of that conversation was looking backwards and, and what loops do we want to close? And, um, you know, I think a, what I really wanted to do was make this feel like a complete story. Uh, and, and so... There was a lot of thinking back to the the first season, particularly about what things have we set up that might be fun to kind of either reference or get back into 
or, or what resonances can we can we find between what was happening then and what's happening now in the world of our characters? Um, and then it was, yeah, there's talk about how do we want to leave these characters and then working backwards from there, what are the steps we need to do to get there over, over 16 episodes? Well, I mean, not to, not to dig into like spoilers or specifics in the season, but was there anything that kind of surprised you when you were spending that time looking back? Was there anything that kind of came out of the, the woodwork or the research where you're just like, oh, I, I do feel we really have to get to this thing that I wasn't planning on originally? That's a good question. What was there anything from the past that that came back in a surprising way? Um, I want to say no. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not very interesting. But no, I, no, that's, but honesty is good. Well, I, I would say the um, the return of uh, Vance Wagner, whose uh, mm-hmm. character played by Bobby Cannavale, uh, that was not something that we had planned until we got to that point in the season. And we thought, oh, you know, it'd be a really fun character to tell this story, help tell this story would be that guy. Uh, and, and and Bobby is so funny. <laughs> Such a pleasure to have him back on the show. Um, but yeah, mo- most of the stuff was stuff that like, like I knew I wanted to, uh, again, I don't want to spoil any of the things because part of the fun of the last season is in the surprisingness, surprisingness of who comes back. Uh, but there were definitely things that we, like... I can say uh, Herb Kazaz, played by Stanley Tucci, was a big part of season one and a small part of season two. Uh, and we haven't really heard from him or about him since. And that felt like a good character to bring back and a good um, time in Bojack's life to kind of reopen up. One of my favorite things about the show, and there are many um, because it's one of my favorite shows, was how openly you engaged in that conversation of mental health and uh, what that struggle looks like, even in someone who's technically not diagnosed with anything. How, how was that part of the plan the entire time? Like, did you go in knowing you wanted to deal with issues like that? And if you didn't, how did you sort of feel them out as you went? Um, it was not necessarily the plan to dive so thoroughly into them. I mean, I didn't know I was going to have six seasons, so <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But I, I think, you know, what was the plan and what was kind of baked into the germ of the idea of what the show became was this idea that we we're going to take these characters somewhat seriously, that we're going to kind of present these characters as you might in a typical wacky animated show um, and then continue to drill down into them and, and really understand them uh, and build off of them and continue to go deeper so I do feel like that kind of serious exploration was was built in to the premise uh, as I pitched it, but I didn't necessarily know quite how thoroughly or seriously we we're going to engage with these issues or have conversations about them. And then also feeling like as the show came out and people started to respond to it, that was the thing that people, it seemed, really liked about the show. And so I think we, we leaned uh, more heavily into it as it felt like, oh, yeah, that is part of what makes the show the show. Did you ever feel overwhelmed by it? Like there was a pressure to perform and like to, yes. to represent well? Yeah, well, we, you know, we want to do it right. But right is so subjective. And and everybody who, ex- who connects to these characters or sees themselves in them or experiences some version of what they experience, you know, sees that differently and sees how they are who they are differently. Um and so there are definitely times when I felt pressure of, oh, we're going to let people down if we don't 
show this correctly or tell this correctly. Um, but all we could do was the best we could do. Uh, and I feel like that has been enough and that, and that we have, we have been, I don't want to say rewarded for that, but that, that, it felt like that has resonated with people that when, when we try to be respectful and, and try to interrogate what we're doing and, 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 and do it the be- to the best of our abilities, that mostly people don't come away saying, oh, they're using this as a prop or they're, they're taking this too lightly. Right. I, as for someone who suffers with depression, like I, I was always so touched because it wasn't like a big, broad, general depression. It was always very specific to the characters, mm-hmm. which made it general, which made it relatable. Um, speaking of specifics, uh, I after Ben and I separately watched Good Damage, um, we which had is an some episode feelings, from the new season. which is an episode from the new season. We had some feelings. Uh, have you gotten any reactions, say, specifically from writers about that episode? Um, because we found it particularly uh, resonant. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, they, they were happy to give you reactions was, if you didn't no, hear anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet. It was it was written by writers, so yeah, I think true. on the you know on on, on the first hand, it definitely felt while we were doing it. This is you know this is about the process of writing, and this is about the difficulty of writing, um, and how do we express that, and how do we tell that story in a visual way. Um, you know, one thing I, I talked a lot about with uh, Joanna Callow, who, who wrote that episode specifically, was is about the idea of how do you know when what you're writing is good? And I think there's a feeling amongst some people that if something comes too easily to you, that means it can't be good. And if something is really hard to write, that means that it it was hard, therefore it is good. That you 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 know you chiseled this block of marble down to a statue, um, and that made it good. And then conversely, I think there are people who believe the exact opposite. That if something flows naturally, then then it is good writing. And if something is a struggle, that means you're you're rowing your boat you know against the current, and it's just it's hopeless, and you're not going to get anything good out of it. Uh, unfortunately. I personally have found no such correlation on either side, uh, which is very unhelpful. That I've worked really hard on stuff that then turned out to be great. I've worked really hard on stuff that then was bad. And there's been stuff that's come easily that's been great and stuff that's come easily that has been bad. Uh, so I, Well, that's its own kind of consistency. <laughs> yeah. I it, so but I, it's I think, nice to depend on that. But I think a, a, big, a big ethos of the show is we don't have the answers and, and we have not found the conclusions but we want to talk about the questions. And, and I guess that's one example of that is what, what makes good writing and how do you know when you should be writing something or when you should just give up? And I, I don't always know the answer to that. But, but I, I kind of um, – I would err on the side of, well, if you never know either way, you might as well do the fun, easy stuff. <laughs> that's very true. That's a great point. Uh, well, to look a little more, I guess, uh, broadly at the show itself, I wanted to ask about kind of how the uh, – the narratives of of this being uh, like at least half of like an antihero drama of of Bojack being an antihero and how um, I felt early on you made it fairly explicit that you that this guy had problems and you were going to address those problems like unlike some of the antihero dramas we've seen in the past with a Tony Soprano or a Walter White or a, uh, even a, a Don Draper 
it was kind of left, it felt to me at least those shows were left up to the audience to judge them in a lot of scenarios. And then other times you could kind of turn the door. But with BoJack, it seemed very explicit that they wanted to, that you wanted to know that this guy was doing bad things and that he was going to be, if not held accountable by the public, then personally held accountable by it. Um, I just wanted to know kind of how that idea kind of merged with what a lot of people are talking about over the last two years of the Me Too movement, where it feels like this is having a conversation that we need to have right now. Um, and at the same time, it also feels like it was always a part of the show. Like it always felt like that conversation was um, being facilitated and, and drawn out over the course of the series. Uh, so just kind of, I, I guess I just kind of wanted sure. to know how those went hand in hand for you or when you felt the influences well, of one I mean, or the other. I, those things are definitely related. And I, I would say kind of in, a, in addition to, you know, I, it's it's funny to me a little bit the conversations around BoJack now versus when we first started and, and that now I feel like the comparison points are Walter White, Tony Soprano, Don Draper. But I think if you look in the DNA of the show, it's just as much about the archetype of like Homer Simpson or Sterling Archer, uh, you know, those those cartoon comedy antiheroes, uh, Peter from Family Guy. Um, and, I, I, in, and, and from the beginning, the idea was kind of both to satirize and exemplify both at once that, that, that it's going to, it's going to feel a little bit like a mix of like, um, Bender from Futurama and Don Draper. Uh, and, but it was going to take both of those characters equally seriously and, and kind of the, the surprise, I think the initial twist of the show is that it is playing with these cartoon archetypes in a serious way and investigating them more thoroughly. And, you know, if The Simpsons had proper continuity, which obviously it doesn't by design, like Homer Simpson would be in jail by now several times over. <laughs> like he would be, uh, you know, Marge would get full custody of those kids um, and, and Homer would be a pariah uh, for strangling Bart alone, uh, let alone all of the other ne negligent, terrible things he does. Um, and so... Part of the dark comedy of the show is, yeah, all this like cartoon stuff that normally doesn't stick to guys. What if it stuck to him? Right. And so then you kind of just follow that through to its natural conclusion. And then as you're, you know, you go into the sixth season, stuff is accumulated. <laughs> it, it feels like he's, you know, he's dragging around this uh, trailer full of damage behind him of, of, of what he's done. And um, the wreckage that he's laid in his wake. Uh, so it, it only felt natural to continue to take that stuff seriously, especially as in the real world, in our culture, the way we've talked about that kind of behavior has changed. It, it seemed like, well, of course, this kind of thing would, would catch up with him as well. Uh, but it is interesting. I think the way we think about fictional characters has changed in the last five years, you know, since the show has been on. Um, and that there are uh, jokes or, or story beats in the first season that maybe felt harmless at the time or pushed or, you know, comical in its misogyny uh, that I feel like ev even if you're trying to do the light version of it now, it wouldn't sit right. You know, and I think there are um, certain, you know, scuzzy playboy archetype characters uh, of the last 
10, 20 years of television that even now feel dated and don't feel as lovable uh, as, as they once did, which is really interesting. And so it felt like for the show to continue, we have to address that and we have to evolve with the times we're in. No, and I, I think that's one of the things that was so impressive over the last few years is just how, how that tricky balance of holding him accountable in a town or in an industry or in a, in a country that both does and doesn't hold people accountable rang true. Like the, the, the fact that he could do, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to get into spoilers of the, of the final season, but the fact that, that Bojack could get away with things for so long and right. then other things would stick to him kind of going through that from a fictional perspective from somebody who's writing it is so interesting because you get to choose, well, could he, could, would the public let him get away with that? Or could they spin this in a certain direction and get out of it versus, okay, this is something he doesn't want to get out of, or this is something they would hold him accountable right. to. Or what are those situations? In some, kind, some ways it's almost arbitrary of like, oh, right. this thing yeah. stuck to him, this thing he got away from, which I think is probably true of, of a lot of the, um, you know, the, the people that we've heard terrible things about in the last few years, I don't think we've heard all of the terrible things. I mean, maybe we have, you know, maybe a guy just did one bad thing and like we got him on it. But I think usually there is a pattern and usually there are other stories that are not being told. Um, but I think also part of our storytelling of the show uh, and when we started really getting into this stuff, uh, particularly in season five, this last season, um, but as interested as we were in, in, in Bojack's uh, guilt and, and culpability, uh, I think we were also just as interested in our own culpability as storytellers. And, 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 and what, are, what, kind, what are we doing by telling a story about this character? And how does, what is our responsibility to society? And when we make these fun jokes about a scuzzy character, does that contribute to a culture that maybe we don't want to be living in? Uh, and how do we as television creators grapple with that? Uh, and that certainly went into the, the story itself. Yeah. And then once we've examined that, how can we continue making this show in this way, yeah. right? And so I think it definitely affected what happened to the character the more we were thinking about how this character exists on this show in the world of the show and also in the real world where people are watching this show. Yeah. I think this show is a very sympathetic show, uh, even as it is, yeah, very direct and in some ways very mean uh, and, and very cutting uh, of certain institutions or people, individuals um, or types of people. Um, I, I do think one of the joys of making uh, a long form show is you have time to get into things, right? And so um, Bojack uh, is obviously a very toxic character, but as the show progresses and you learn more about his background and where he's from and you really understand why he is the way he is, you start to have uh, empathy for him and you, and you start to feel bad for him, you know, because he had this terrible mother and then as we get to know the mother more, we start to understand why she is the way she is. And, and she had uh, a, a difficult upbringing of her own in the society that she was in. Um, you know, we, if we had more time, maybe we could have told the story about her, his mother's father and where he's from and why he is the way he is. And I think at a, at a certain point, I think the audience can kind of imagine that, that yes, you can tell a story about any of these people. Um, I, I don't think there are any pure villains on the show. 
uh, although some we get less insight into than others. Um, but I, I like to think that everybody on the show is a person trying to survive doing what they think they need to do. And the way that hits our characters or their circumstances might feel bad, um, but it is not because they are monsters. Uh, all the same, that does not mean they should not be criticized, right? And, and I think a, a big balancing act we try to do on the show, specifically with Bojack, is to understand him and feel for him without feel like we're feeling like we're exonerating him. And now rank every character on the show from Goodness absolute to good. To <laughs> <laughs> every Bojack character, comma, ranked. Todd. Uh, well, Margot Martindale <laughs> is probably somewhere near the top. Well, I did, I did want to ask a little bit about kind of your um, personal plans and ambitions after, now that Bojack's over. Because what? Again, uh, <laughs> I, so so what's next? That's <laughs> a question that is probably... Uh, Posed of a of Bojack. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I honestly just from from watching over the last few years, like all of the kind of uh, magnificent products you've you've either co-created or shepherded, as well as the book, as well as um, you know just the different forms that Bojack has taken yeah, over man, the final I've done season. A lot. You're doing a lot. Can of I take stuff. a nap? You can absolutely <laughs> say you're taking a nap, but uh, you know people want to see more of it. They want to see more, like want to hear more from you. And first you're and foremost, I was just curious if you ever wanted to do like do you I, do you want to move outside of animation at all like do you want to go uh you know obviously you've still got undone that you're working on but like are you interested in moving into other genres and other i put ways out of 36 episodes of television over the last year <laughs> and a book of short stories <laughs> it's not enough for you people no. welcome to 2020 the content never ends um no i don't know i, <laughs> I mean i'll yeah i'll i'll do other stuff um I, you know, I really enjoyed working uh, with Lisa on Tuca and Birdie uh, and with Kate Purdy on um, Undone. That feels good to me to help people make their shows. You know, I feel like I, I, I did my show and I, I said what I have to say. And, and in the foreseeable future, I, I'd like to do more of that. But I don't know. I think we'll see what, what, what excites me next and, and where I'm going. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to keep doing things. But mostly I'd like to take a nap because I've been working very hard. Very understandable. But I mean, I, I also feel like a lot of the questions that were asked of, again, going back to kind of the anti-hero stuff, but a lot of the questions that are asked when people are finishing something that goes into these deeper, darker places is kind of how it affected them and yeah. what they feel like coming out. Like, you know, John Hamm talked about it a lot when Mad Men was ending. Um, but I was, I mean, I was curious if you, like how you felt after spending so much time in this character's headspace and going through the show, if you were able to balance it because well, of the two sides that it had. It's or... hard to say, right? Like how does a fish enjoy the water? Um, I, I, I like to think mainly this show has been a good tool for me to excise some, some demons and some, blah, 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 you know, like, a lot of that stuff in that uh, Diane episode uh, where she's kind of like vomiting onto the page. I think I I got a lot of stuff out that I think otherwise might sit in my brain and infect things. Um, uh, uh, other days, I feel like the opposite. I feel like I I put myself in a dark place to do this show and it it weighs on me and, and that when I'm free from it, I, I feel a little lighter. Um, so I, I think we'll see in the coming months what kind of monster I become uh, without it. Uh, or if I, it turns out, oh, my goodness, I'm much happier. 
I, I cannot predict it. Um, but I, I will say in the immediate future, I'm, I'm relieved to not have to be in this world for a little bit to, to explore other kinds of characters and different kinds of stories. Oh, you were talking about live action. We can talk about old English sketches. Oh, <laughs> that is the past. <laughs> it's the thing I've been, when, as this was coming up, can we talk about old English? Let's I would, talk about old English. Do we oh. need to explain to the listener what old English is? I think we, it's a, it was proto, it was at the very uh, nascent stages of YouTube. You guys were posting videos online. Was YouTube even a huge it part actually, of that? It uh, predates YouTube. Yeah. yeah I, I would say the, the, so I was in a sketch comedy group that started at my college and we went to New York. It was called Old English. And I actually think the, the main reason for whatever success we had is because we were putting videos online back when a time when not a lot of people were doing that. So if you were a comedy fan looking for videos online, we were one of the few shops in town. Um, we got a little bit of a, a fan base off of that. And then when YouTube came, we thought, should we put our videos on YouTube? Like, why don't we put them on YouTube? We have them on our own site, oldenglish.org. <laughs> why would this is, no, this isn't going to stick around. People were downloading whatever, QuickTime. Yeah, exactly. You're going to upload a QuickTime. <laughs> you'll, you'll press the button. It'll take like an hour for a three-minute video. You'll go, you know, get lunch and you'll come back and you'll watch our funny video that's like very pixelated and hard to see exactly who's talking when. But because it's the only thing you got, you'll take it. I mean, it, you, you guys were sort of one of the very first, it's pre-college humor, is it not? Or similar? Around the same time as yeah. college humor. Actually, I mean, it might be pre, like their videos. I remember when college humor was like the, the website just with a bunch of links kind of going down I mean, the, the page. The around, onion, around the same time. Onion didn't have video till 2006. Yeah. So this, you guys were ahead of the we, we started like in 2003, 2002, 2003 was the beginning of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I was actually thinking... Rewatching some of the episodes this past weekend. <laughs> they hold up. Uh, oh no, no, I, I was saying Bojack. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I sent I sent them the Project Runway. Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, I was like, is this on the table? Can we ask him about this? But then watching the Shark Jacobs, I'm like, uh, did those two things? What are the mirrors of like your take on fashion or uh -huh. the, the world of high fashion? How much of that comedy? That was like your comedy school in it was. some ways. I think that's a great way to put it. I, I actually, um, there are two things that I, I feel like I really got out of Old English. Maybe more things. We'll start with two and we'll see where the conversation goes. Is one <laughs> friendships? That was not one, but I did get some excellent friendships out of Old English. So let's say three things. The, the first thing, most important thing was friendship. Um, the second thing uh, I think was kind of the the comedy boot camp aspect of it that, you know, it's it was all about the joke, what's funny, and it was with four other guys who all had strong opinions about comedy and there was no hierarchy there's no head writer so it was just about convincing as a, a quorum of guys enough to like get the momentum to actually make this sketch happen and, and so there's a lot of like drag out fights like i think this is funny i don't think it's funny it is funny and here's why what if we change this no that's less funny um <laughs> but it really kind of ingrained like you have to make two to three of these four guys laugh. And if you don't have enough laughs per page, you're not gonna get your thing through. And I think that really sharpened my comedy muscles in a way that when we were writing BoJack, I wasn't thinking about the comedy. I felt like I know how to write a joke. I want, now I am in charge and I wanna focus on the character. I wanna focus on the story beats, the emotionality of it. And I'm trusting that it'll be funny because I know that I can write jokes. And also I hired a room full of comedy writers. It's gonna be funny. And so I think that that comfort with my own 
sense of humor, my own feeling like, yeah, I, I can look at a page and see where to put some jokes. I think that came from, from working with that group for so long. Um, I think the second thing, or the third thing for counting friendship is the first thing. The, <laughs> we, got, we got to count friendship. The, the third thing uh, that came out of the group was a love for thinking about stories uh, in terms of format. And what, what, is the, what is the delivery device for this comedy? And that was something that we took very seriously, right? That, that I remember we were talking about one sketch that's like in the format of a movie trailer. And it, and it felt to us like a lot of sketches a lot of movie trailer sketches didn't actually feel like movie trailers. Like the scenes were too long and like it gave away the ending of the fake movie. And that it felt like if, if we were doing a movie trailer, I wanted to like cut and feel like a movie trailer. If we were doing a music video, we wanted it to feel like a music video. We wanted it to, to be the thing that it was, or we'd start with the format and work backwards, right? There was a, a viral video, um, uh, where this guy uh, took a picture of his face every day for like six years uh, and and people loved it. And we thought, what are, what are the comedy opportunities in using this as a format? And that was kind of the first thought was, we're going to do this thing and now what are the jokes, right? And so when I think about story on BoJack or in my book, uh, a lot of times it starts from a place of what's a kind of way to tell a story that I think would be fun. And then what is the story or what are the jokes that that would justify that? Making sure your reference is valid and that you are dead on is like the key to some people missing out on comedy and and people who actually are good at comedy. Yeah. You but also I think from storytelling, you know, the, the idea of uh, we I want this episode to just be one monologue. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to be as true to that as possible. And I think sometimes that is helpful. And I think sometimes it gets in the way. Right. So I remember we have an episode in uh, season two called Let's Find Out, uh, which is Bojack goes on a game show hosted by Mr. Peanut Butter. And as we were breaking the story or talking about the story, there was a question like, how much, how much runway do you need for the story? Um, how, do we, how much do we need to explain here? And one of our writers at the time, uh, Mehar Sethi, who was not the writer of the episode, uh, the episode was written by Ali and Scott, um, but I remember Mehar very strongly in the room said, the whole episode should take place over the filming of this episode of the game show that we shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be first act. Hey, do you want to do this game show? You know, and then going to it and then feeling the aftermath. Like how can we set the whole thing in the studio while it's happening? And, uh, there were moments where it felt like this is difficult It'd be easier if we can move around. But I think one of the strengths of that episode is that we did stick to that. Um, there are other times where I, I think we've helped our episodes by giving them more breathing room, by not being so strict to the format, mm -hmm. right? We have an episode in uh, season four called Stupid Piece of Shit. Can I swear on this? Um, which is uh, all about Bojack's inner monologue uh, and similarly uses animation in a really cool way to kind of show what he's thinking. Um, and I think when people think about that episode or remember that episode, they probably don't even remember that episode is a pretty thorough B story involving uh, Princess Carolyn and, and Rutabaga trying to make a fake wedding for Todd and Courtney Portnoy, which has nothing to do with the A story whatsoever. And I, there were moments where we felt like, does this fit or should, should we be more strict about this, this format for the episode? But as we we're putting it together, it felt like it's going to be exhausting. Like you need a breather. You need space to just kind of be in this, this goofy, much less important story to kind of give the BoJack story room to be what it is. 
No one should be trapped in a depressed person's like inner monologue for more than a few minutes. Yeah, it's time. heavy enough. Yeah, like I don't I think, think it takes away from the episode. Like you get it. <laughs> I think, it's, yeah. it's good. It's good. It's good. If you don't have to be there, you shouldn't be there. Unless Find it's a, a visit. Unless it's a performative monologue like uh, Fritchero. Well, where, so where, that's, where, where, uh, where, yeah. where he is performing, but it's still his inner monologue. Right. So that was something we talked to about how purely do we want to do this monologue episode. And I remember when we were starting, you know, I, I knew we wanted to be a monologue and he's giving this eulogy and, he, and he's telling s- different stories. But we had a plan B because I didn't know how it was going to look. And so I, I told Amy Winfrey, the director of that episode, that, you know, if you need to, we can maybe cut away to some of these stories he's telling, like drunk history style, and like see some of the stuff that he's doing. Um, and Amy said, well, let's try for plan A. Like, we, let's let's see how it looks with just Bojack. And I think that was the right choice. But you definitely, there, it's always a negotiation because when you look at the final episode, it's easy to be like, yep, we pulled it off. It works. But like, while you're making it, you don't know. You don't know. Am, am, am I being too precious about this device? Am I being too pure about this? Mm-hmm. Um, Will the audience notice if we pull because they don't know what the goal was? So the the end goal is just make a good episode. And I think sometimes that purity helps you, and I think sometimes it gets in the way. And I think the the um, you know what you really want is the serenity to know the difference between the two, right? Uh, well, thank you for being here. I think we gotta let you go because we've gone a little over, but uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, it's we a love pleasure show, for me. Thank you. So thank this you. This is so fun. Yeah. And we're back. Hey, guys. That interview went okay, I thought. <laughs> Libby. Hi. You said that after each one. Uh, I did. I do feel uh, bad that we didn't have Raphael ask you this question, Libby. I thought it would have been pertinent. He's on a streaming. He was on a streaming platform. There's a new streaming platform that advertised during the Super Bowl, a confluence of perfect events. This would be the most perfect time for you to announce that you have a show on Quibi. They, well, could, they could have used you in the commercial. I hate to disappoint you, boys, but I do not have a show on Quibi. Not a disappointment at all. It means we get to keep the podcast. We get Libby. Quibi gets not Libby. Quibi loses. We win. Quibi gets Chance the Rapper. Mm. I'll take take Libby over Chance. Millions of Screens is a production of Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork, talking about our TV, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Ann Donahue. You can find us on Twitter at A Million Screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, leave a review, and maybe we'll get around to doing something about it. <laughs> this is Ben, Livy, and Leo reminding you as always that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. (laughs) Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.